Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, as you heard, um, we just finished VBS, and uh, they had, we had this theme in VBS that uh, uh, when life is unfair, God is good, right? And that's what we would uh, we'd say, and, or uh, when, uh, uh, when life is scary, God is good. Uh, when life is sad, God is good. When life is changing, God is good. And then, and then when life is good, God's good. And we, we emphasized that theme, and we heard that theme, and the kids would yell it at the top of their lungs, you know, uh, God is good. And, and I can tell you that it, it worked firsthand. We had uh, three grandkids spend the weekend with us. They were here for VBS and then stayed through the weekend, and, and uh, Jack's six and Henry's four, and uh, there was this moment where uh, Henry's playing something with something that Jack wanted, so he reaches over and snatches it, and Jack, or Henry immediately says, not fair, and Henry says, but God is good. <laughs> to which Grandpa replied, and you're still going to give him back the toy, okay? That's what... <laughs> but he had it down. He, he, remembered, he remembered the line, and his, his timing was, imperf- it was, it was perfect. That's right. And, uh, uh, and so we have those. And one of the things that struck me uh, in all of this is that we believe God is good. And if I asked you, you would say, yes, God is good. And, and yet we have these moments in our lives, we have these times in our lives where, uh, y- you know, where we don't feel safe. Uh, where uh, we don't we don't feel you know we don't feel uh, like everything is good around us. We don't feel like everything is fair. We have these moments in our lives that we're sad. Uh, we have moments in our lives when all of these things are happening that we feel like maybe that somebody's just pulled the rug out from under us and life isn't what we expected it to be. And it's at those moments in our lives, at those very times, that we have to decide: Do I really believe this? And we're in this series, Best Summer Ever, and this morning we're going to talk about believe in. We've talked about lean in. We've talked about, you know, various things. And this summer, we're, this, this morning, we're going to talk about uh, believe in because there was a moment for the disciples in the New Testament that, that they had to decide, are we going to trust Jesus? You know, the disciples had left everything to follow Jesus, right? Remember the scene uh, in Luke where Jesus is talking to Peter and, and Andrew and James and John, and he says, I want you to drop your nets. I want you to leave everything. I want you to follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And what happened is that their, their whole life had been about fishing, that for generations, the people in their family, the men in their family had been fishermen, that that's what they knew, that's what they were good at, that's how they fed their family, that's how they made their living, that they were fishermen. And Jesus said, I want you to leave that and I want you to follow me, and they did. They left everything. All of the disciples left what they were doing. Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, He was making money. He had power. He had prestige. He left that. He walked away from the tax table to follow Jesus. They had given up everything to follow follow him, and then they come to this point at the end when it feels like Jesus has pulled the rug out from under them, and he's telling them that he's going to go away. Wait a minute, Jesus, we left everything to follow you, and now you tell us that that you're going away. Not fair. I'm sad. This This isn't the way it was supposed to be. 
We were so convinced that we'd found the Messiah. We were so convinced that, that you were going to set up a, a new kingdom, a new government, and we would be part of your cabinet, that we would be reigning with you, that you're going to right all the wrongs, throw out the Romans, start this new government, and we're going to be the leadership part. We're going we're gonna to be the vice president and the secretary of state and all of these things, and, and we're going to have these great roles, and now you're telling us that you're going away. That just doesn't seem right. And so they had this moment in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, where uh, they were all competing and they were so self-centered and they're selfish and they're debating and they're fighting uh, over who's going to be the best, who's going to be number one when Jesus establishes his kingdom, when Jesus overthrows the Romans, who's going to get the lead spots, who's going to get the choice positions. And they're arguing so much with each other that they come to this supper that Jesus, the day before, the night before that he is going to be arrested and crucified, and they're arguing among themselves. They're so focused on themselves that they walk into this upper room that Jesus has planned this dinner, and there's no servant there to wash their feet. And they thought, I'm not going to lower myself to wash my own feet. You know, the future vice president of the holy kingdom doesn't wash his own feet. How, why would I do that? And, and they walk in and they recline at the table with dirty feet. I may not seem like a big deal to you, but if you wore sandals all the time <laughs> in dirty Jerusalem, you might think about washing your feet. That was really the custom. They did that. They washed their hands and their feet, but not this night. They're reclining at the table. And if you know the story, if you've ever heard the story, you know that Jesus got a towel and he wrapped it around him and he got a basin of water and he went around and, and he washed all of their feet for them. The Christ, the Son of God, the one who came to be crucified, he washes all of their feet. And then he says... No, no student is better than their teacher. You see what I've done. Now I want you to live your life this way. You, you think that you're supposed to be the vice president. You think that you should be secretary of state. Here's what I tell you the job is. It's to be a foot washer. It's to wash the feet of others. It's to serve others. It's, it's a role of humility in the world. And the disciples are hearing all of that and they're thinking, wait a minute, this isn't how I thought it was going to be. And then Jesus goes on to say, and you know what, I'm going to be betrayed. He tells them again, and, and I'm going to be crucified, and they're going to mock me. And the disciples are thinking, this can't happen. And he says, one of you are going to betray me. And he's referring to Judas. And, and then he, he says that you're all going to flee from me. And Peter, of course, Peter says, no, not me, Lord. Don't even talk like that. And Jesus says to Peter, you know what? Before the morning, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's devastated. How can you say this, Lord? We've given up everything to follow you. We've trusted you. We, we've given our lives to you. And so now we come to this place that, that they have to decide, do I, who do I believe? Do I believe in Jesus? And in John, the 14th chapter, Jesus is going to help them out. He says this, starting in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled, or, or in other words, stop being troubled. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know? 
And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The words of Jesus. He, he says this, he says the very first thing he says to him. He says, you believe in the Father, now believe in me. You see, here's what the disciples had and all the Israelites had, is they had history. They, they had a history and they were told from their father's knee and their grandfather's knee and their mothers and their teachers that they had the story of how God had protected Israel. They had the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel. They had the story of Joseph and how God had protected him and raised him up. They had the story of 400 years in captivity in Egypt and how God sent Moses to say, let my people go and he rescued them out of Egypt and then they find their way to the promised land and they have centuries and centuries of God taking care of his people, of God keeping his promises, of God protecting his people. And, and so they have these stories, they have this knowledge of God. And Jesus says, you believe you know God. You believe in him. Now believe in me. Because here's the big story. It's that I am God. That I'm the one that God sent you believe in the Father, now you believe in me. And so we have these times in our lives where uh, we, feel, you know, we, we feel unsafe. We have these times in our lives when we feel sad. We, we, we have, have these times in our lives when, when change is happening and everything feels like it's changing around us and the rug's being pulled out from us and we don't know where we're going and, and we want to believe that God is good and we need to be reminded, how do I know that? How can I trust that? How does that become real in my own life? And we don't have the same kind of history that the Israelites had, but here's what we have. We have the resurrection. We have the truth of the resurrection. And here's what we believe, that if the resurrection is true, then all the rest of this must be true, right? If the resurrection is true, then all of those other promises, all the things that Jesus said, they must be true. So I want to do just a little reminder for you this morning about the resurrection why we believe it's true. There was an investigative reporter named Lee Strobel, and he sort, of, he sort of boiled down the truth of the resurrection to four E's, four E's. The, the, the first one was execution, uh, that, that virtually every scholar today concedes that Jesus was executed, that we have what we call biblical evidence, that it was recorded in the scripture, but we also have what scholars call extra biblical evidence, and that is that people that outside of the Christian faith, outside of the church, also wrote about it. A, a historian named Josephus, another uh, historian named Tacitus, wrote about the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified. Now, there's also a famous, uh, well-known uh, atheist uh, scholar named Gerard Ludeman, who also said, without a doubt, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a cross. Crucifixion was the Romans' way of, of executing people. It was the most humiliating, the most painful, the most frightening uh, way of execution that had ever been invented up to that point, and they crucified Jesus. And so we know the first E is execution. We know that Christ was executed. We know that he died on a cross. Well, the second E that we have is an empty tomb. 
it's just so interesting in the, in the gospel stories, it, it says that the, that the religious leaders, that when the women went back and, and others went back and they found the tomb was empty, the religious leaders paid the soldiers who'd been guarding the tomb to say that his disciples had come and stolen the body. Well, implicit in their uh, statement that the disciples came and stole the body is that they knew that the tomb was empty. They always knew the tomb was empty. In fact, uh, if you were living in that time, no one ever doubted that the tomb was empty. The question was, how did it get empty? How did it happen? And so they made up this story, and nobody believed it in the first century, and nobody believes it now, because the disciples had no means, no opportunity, no way that they could have taken the body, that they could have stolen it. We have no evidence over 2,000 years that that ever happened, but we have an empty tomb. So we have an execution that we can, that's historically proven, and we have an empty tomb that's never, we've never found the body. We've never seen any other evidence other than the fact that Christ raised. Now, the, the third thing that we have are early accounts. Uh, that, that here's what uh, scholars would say, is that it takes at least two generations for a legend or a myth to replace truth in a story. Uh, that it takes at least two generations. So if you want to say that the story of the resurrection is a myth, it can't be a myth, it can't be a legend, because it takes at least two generations for that to become seen as, uh, as for a legend to take hold or a myth to take hold in a culture. But we have recorded evidence of the resurrection of Jesus within months of the actual event that right away people saw Jesus, right away people experienced Jesus, right away it's being recorded. We have the story of the women uh, that went to the tomb, and, and no offense, ladies, but if you were living in the first century, one of the rules was that women weren't even allowed to be witnesses in a trial because their testimony was considered unreliable. So if I'm gonna make up a story, if I'm gonna write a myth about the resurrection of Jesus, I'm gonna have disciples or Pharisees or leaders or somebody, I'm gonna have them go to the tomb because nobody would believe me if I said a group of women were the first ones at the tomb to experience Jesus, and you would only write that if it was true. You'd only record it that way if it was true. We had early accounts of eyewitnesses. In fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, you find that it's recorded there that Jesus appeared to more than 515 people after the resurrection. And not only did he appear to those 515 people, but many of those people died for their faith in Jesus. Many of those people died with, with, by refusing to turn their back on the truth of the resurrection. All, all of the disciples died except for the apostle John and he died in exile as an old man. All the rest were martyred for the truth of the resurrection. And that many people wouldn't die for a lie. That many people wouldn't die for a myth. That we have these early accounts of, we have this early accounts of the resurrection and then we have the eyewitnesses the 515, the other eyewitnesses. Here, here we have these eyewitnesses that are so powerful that on the first day of the church, that when Peter, uh, when, when they received the Holy Spirit and Peter preached his first sermon, 3,000 people responded because of the resurrection. And so we have the truth of the execution, we have the empty tomb, we have the early accounts, 
and we have the eyewitnesses to the truth. And here's what we have. All of this evidence for the resurrection, the question is, do you believe? Do you trust that? I can give you facts all day long, but at some point we have to step out and say, I believe that. I believe that to be true. I believe that to be true in my life. Because here's the thing. If you believe in the resurrection, everything else, you have to believe the rest of it. All of the rest of it has to be true. And here's what Jesus said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And you want to do a big timeout? Wait a minute, that is so narrow-minded. That's so hard to take these days. There has to be more ways to get to God. How can you be so bigoted? How can you be so narrow-minded? How can you say that, that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? And here's what I'm telling you, that the Christ who rose from the grave, he's the one that said it. I am the way, I'm the destination, that if you want to find the Father, if you want to find eternal life, it comes through me. I'm the way. Jesus said, I'm the truth. I keep my promises. I am who I said I am. That I'm going to fulfill all of those things that I've said that I'm going to do. You can trust that. You can bet your life on it because I'm the truth. I'm not a truth. I'm not one of the truths. I'm the truth. And we find all truth through Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and I'm the life. If you want to experience life, if you want to know what life really means, if you want to know how big life can really be, it comes through me. And so we have this resurrection story, and we're challenged to believe it. And here's what we get with the resurrection, that no matter how hard my life is, no matter how complicated it is, no matter how disappointing or sad it is, in the worst moment of my life, I believe in the resurrection. I believe that what Jesus said is true, and I can take all of those other things, and I can stand on them. And here's what Jesus said. The first thing that you get that Jesus mentions in John 14 from the resurrection is you get a place. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I have a home for you. You're not going to be homeless. You're going to spend eternity with me. I'm promising you heaven. I'm promising you a place that life doesn't end here. And no matter how hard you think it is, and no matter how much change you've experienced in your life, and no matter how much sadness, you know how the story ends. And do you know how Jesus defines heaven? Do you know how he describes heaven for us in this passage? You'll be with me. Heaven is being in the presence of Jesus for eternity, experiencing him firsthand. That's the greatest experience. It's not about, you know, all the stuff that you get. It's about being with him. It's about being in his presence, the Christ who loved you more than you could ever imagine, who gave himself for you, who rose again, and he says, you're gonna spend eternity with me. I am preparing a place for you that where I am, you can be also. He promises us a place. Uh, The other thing that he promises us is a relationship. I I wanna keep reading in John 14. Here's here's how the story uh, continues. Philip The apostle Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. (laughs) Have you ever done that? Have you ever said, God, if you could just show yourself to me, if you could just like let me see Jesus, or let me see an angel, or let me see something really awesome happen, if you could just show me a a miracle, if you could just do this for me, I don't know why we think we can manipulate God like this and say, okay, now if you'll just do this for me, then I'll believe. 
when he's given us all the other evidence, he's given us all the other stuff, but, but that's what Philip is saying that day. Okay, now, if you could just do this for me, okay? Because I kind of like to be in control of things. I kind of like to make the rules. So, so, Jesus, if you'll just show us the Father, then that'll be enough. We'll, we'll believe. <laughs> show us God. It's a small thing. Show us God, and then we'll believe. But look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, have I, been with, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? You still don't know who I am? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Here's what Jesus is saying, that look, you guys, believe in me, believe in who I am, but if you're really struggling with that, just remind yourself, just think back to that day that we were all walking, and we came to this village called Nain, and there's a group of people coming out of the gates of Nain, and they have a young man who's died, and he's on this funeral bier, and they're carrying him, and his mother, who's a widow, is behind him crying. She's hopeless and desperate. She has nothing left in her life, and I see them, and I stop the crowd, and I reach up, and I touch this young man, and he comes back to life, and I give him back to his mom. Just remember that. Think about that. If you're struggling with this whole idea of who I am, think about that moment, or, or think about the day that we're walking down the road, and a man who's been blind from birth calls out, Jesus Son of David, have mercy on me. And we stopped everything and I, and I went over to him and I touched him and he could see again. Remember that day. Keep in mind those things. If you're struggling to believe who I am, remember what we did. You were there. You were part of that. And now to top all of that off, you and I get the resurrection. That Jesus rose again. We have those accounts, we have those stories, but we have this experience now in Jesus. He reminds them of that. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on the account of the works themselves. You've seen all of this happen. And then Jesus says something that's pretty spectacular, pretty remarkable. In verse 12, he says this, truly, truly, and you always say that, you always repeat that word for emphasis, I really want you guys to pay attention to this. This is really big. It's really true. It's really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Wait a minute, Jesus. What are you saying? Jesus is making this bold statement that he says, if you're, if you're in me, if I'm in you, if you're my follower, if you believe in me, if you trust in the resurrection, you're going to do, you're going to do the things that I've done and you're going to do greater things than I've done. Can you imagine this? Now I want you to just take a deep breath for a second and I want you to think about this truth that here is the Christ the risen one, the one who's offered us life, the one who gave himself up for us, the one who rose again, he is saying that if you're my follower, if you believe in me, I'm gonna give you a bigger life than you ever dreamed. I'm gonna give you a greater impact. I'm gonna make your life more powerful, more important than you ever dreamed. If you're my follower, if you trust in me. And here's what we have. We have in, in Acts 1.8, Jesus says to his followers that when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, you're gonna be my witnesses. 
in, Jeru in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is gonna go out because of all of you. And so that then the, the day of Pentecost comes and Peter, as I talked about before, preaches his first sermon and 3,000 people respond to his first sermon. The church explodes onto the scene. Within years, the church is starting to grow into thousands and then into millions and then covering the whole earth that the word of God has gone out and Peter's preached the first sermon and 3,000 people responded. And in Jesus's ministry, uh, if you took all the people who responded at this and, and put them all together, you wouldn't get to 3,000, that what Peter did was even bigger. And he had promised, Jesus had said, greater things than these will you do. That Jesus healed a blind man. 3,000 people that day went from death into life because of the words of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Because Peter had the boldness to preach the resurrection of Jesus, the truth about who Christ was. And Jesus says, that's the life I'm offering you. That's what it means to believe in me. That's what it means to have the resurrected spirit of Jesus in you. That we have that opportunity. That Jesus wants to do something bigger and greater in your life. But you think about it, you think this morning, I, okay, Larry, but I'm, you know, I'm no famous person and I don't have a big platform. And, and I think we don't understand what it means to do great works. I don't think we understand all the time what it means to do important things for Jesus. So I asked this question, you know, does anybody know Billy Graham's dad's first name? Nobody knows his dad's first name. It, it, it was actually William Sr., but he was William Jr., but we don't know his dad's first name, but I wish I'd have known him. Wouldn't you love to just go up to Billy Graham's dad and say, what was it like to, what, what did you do? When, when he was four and he had a temper tantrum, what, what did you do with Bill? When he wouldn't share with his siblings, how did you, how did you correct him? And at nighttime, did you pray and sing with him? What, what, what did you do to raise Billy Graham? We don't know him, but we know that he raised Billy Graham that God multiplied his life millions of times in bigger ways than he could have ever dreamed because of Jesus, because of who Christ was in his life. And so it, it, may, be that, it, it may be that we don't have a, a spectacular, huge stage uh, ever in our lives, but it may be that, uh, that you may, you, maybe you're not raising the next Billy Graham, but maybe when you teach that, that little boys in third grade that the next Billy Graham's in there, Maybe when you're rocking babies in the nursery and, and it doesn't feel like it's a big deal or very important, but maybe, maybe you're rocking the next Billy Graham there. But I'll tell you what you are, who you are rocking. You're rocking somebody that really matters to Jesus, that's really important to him. You're, you're rocking someone that he died for. Is that the best? Is that bigger than you can imagine? You see, it's not always what we think. We sort of have these ideas of, of what greatness is. And, and Jesus is saying, no, greatness is when I'm in you and you're being faithful to me, that you're being obedient to what I've called you to, that you're doing the task that I put in front of you. You're, you're being faithful to the call that I've put in your life. Greatness comes out of that. It's never about us doing something great. It's about what the greatness of Jesus can do through us. So last week in, in Vacation Bible School, we'd give these pictures of animals to these two and three-year-olds. And we'd say, here, here's some Crayolas and color these pictures. 
<laughs> and occasionally they actually colored the animal. Most of the time it was just like, you know, scratching the paper all over the place with a, a crayola and then getting another color and doing the whole thing over again. And it was just sort of, you know, marks all over the page. And, and then we'd write their names in the corner at the end of the morning when their parents came to get them, we would, we would hand them this picture. And we'd say, here, uh, you know, your, your little one colored this for you. And it was just marks on a page, right? As far as we know. But when a mom sees that, and she looks at that picture, and she says, oh, did you color this for me? This is so awesome. Thank you. And she's going to take it home. It's probably going to go in the refrigerator, right? Because it's not because of the quality. This is not, we're not talking Rembrandt here. We're talking my baby here. This is my child who did this for me, and I love this, not because of how great it is, but because of who did it. That's what makes it valuable. That's what makes it so special. That's what we love about it. And we think that before we can do anything for God, we have to, we have, to have the right colors and paint in the lines just perfect and, and color it just perfect and get everything just right. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not about you. It's not about how well you color inside the lines. It's, it's not about whether or not you understand all the colors and get it just right. It, it's, it's about the fact that you love me and you did this for me and I'm gonna make this a magnificent picture. That I'm gonna put it up. And say, so you did this for me. We, we just have this whole idea that we're supposed to do something grandiose and Jesus saying, no, you, you do the, what you do for me and I will make it great. I will make it special. I'll make it invaluable because you did it for me and it's all about him. It's, it's not about us. And we, we get those things confused so often in our lives. You know, there are two other parts of the story that are really powerful. In John 14, starting at verse 15 through, through 17, Jesus talks about the fact that he's in the Father and the Father's in him. And then he says, I'm gonna send you a comforter. I'm gonna send my spirit. And you know what my spirit is going to do? My spirit, the spirit of the resurrected Jesus, that spirit's going to be in you. Think about it. Jesus is in the Father. The Father's in him. And now he says, and you're going to be in me, and I'm going to be in you. You're going to have the resurrected spirit of Jesus Christ living in you, the resurrected spirit of Jesus living in you to transform you. I don't think we always appreciate what is inside of us when we follow Jesus. How great that is. How powerful it is that the resurrected spirit of Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit lives in us and lives through us and wants to make our lives more holy and bigger and more powerful than we could ever imagine. He wants to do things through us because of who he is, because he lives in us. And Jesus promised that. And if the resurrection is true, then this is true, that Christ in you offers you a life that's bigger than you can imagine. And then the last thing that he says is, comes in verse 27 that, that, that Jesus says to this, says to them, my peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. He says it's not a peace that you can find anyplace else. It's not a peace that you can get on your own. It's not a peace that you can manufacture, but it's my peace 
that I leave with you. Not, uh, my peace I give you. Not the world, not the peace that the world can give you, but it's a peace that you can only get from me. And peace, this idea of the peace that Christ offers is a wholeness. It's a completeness that Christ wants to give us. You know, I used to think, I used to think that the opposite of peace was war. And then I came to realize that really the opposite of peace is chaos. It's just our life being fragmented all over the place. It's feeling unmoored and uncertain. And we don't have comfort, we don't have peace, we don't have any of those things in our lives. And Jesus, when he says, when I come into your life, I wanna pull all of that chaos together. And I wanna give you a new direction. I wanna give you new purpose in your life. I want you to experience my wholeness. I want to give you my peace, and the world can't give you that peace, and the world can't take that peace away from you. It's my peace that he offers us. It's part of the believing in the resurrection. It's part of trusting Jesus with our lives. It's part of recognizing that Christ lives in us. My peace I give you, and that's the kind of peace that we want. That's the kind of peace that we need in our lives. It's the kind of promise that we have through the resurrection that Christ makes our lives bigger than we could ever imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word and for reminding us this morning of how great you are, of how much you love us, of what it means to believe in the resurrection and that you've given us this, Lord, as a sign. You've given us this as, uh, uh, to remind us, uh, to teach us that you always keep your promises. That, Lord, we have a place. We have a relationship with the Father. Uh, we have a spirit, your spirit that lives in us, and we have a peace that the world can't give and the world can't take away. And we believe you this morning, Lord. We believe in you. And our belief is built on the resurrection, the truth of who you are. And we thank you. We give you praise for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. So um, Billy Graham said one time, someday you're going to hear that I'm dead. Don't believe it. I'll be more alive than I've ever been. And that's the truth when we understand the resurrection. That's the truth when we understand that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that he gave us that promise and he fulfilled it with the resurrection. We're going to have prayer partners uh, on the side this morning. If you'd like prayer, I encourage you to stop by there and and uh, let them pray with you and for you. And then also, as always, our prayer table, you can write your prayer requests down and, and uh, we'll start tomorrow morning praying through all those prayer requests and keep praying. Um, keep praying for you until you say, stop, stop, we're good, okay, please. That's enough, that's enough prayer, all right? But take advantage of those opportunities uh, for prayer. So, Vacation Bible School is over. We learned this lesson that God is good. And uh, so as we finish this morning, I'd like you to help me out a little bit because here's what we did with the kids. We would say, uh, when life is not fair, 
Okay, but you can do better, right? So when life is not fair, all right. And when life is sad, and when life is scary, and when life is changing, and God is good all the time. I love you guys. Have a great day. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.